Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the History of England, episode 271, Most Faithful Subject. Before we start, though, some news, if you happen to have missed it. There will be a conference on the 29th of June in New York City at which I will be speaking. Amazingly, Mike Duncan is speaking too. You know, History of Rome. Then there's Kevin Stroud, Royfield Brown, loads of glittering stars from Agora. It's a great lineup. It's called Intelligent Speech, which I fear may be postmodern irony. But if you happen to be near New York on the 29th of June, you could hear us all talk, then go on your way, or you can stay for supper, share supper and have a tipple, which would be a hoot. To find out more then, go to the History of England website where there's a link, or just go straight to intelligentspeechconference.com. I really hope you'll be able to make it. Now, on with the show. Last time, we heard about the collapse of the conspiracy by Wyatt and his chumps. Inside the council and the royal apartments, if there could have been bunting, there would have been bunting. And any opportunity for a good bunt is after all to be welcomed. But I don't think they had the word at the time, so they must have found some other way to feel happy. It is traditional, of course, when you feel happy and gay, to feel a rush of goodwill towards all. Or at least, I have found this to be so, but not for everyone. And not, specifically, for two folks close to Mary at this time, indeed, closest to her. The Chancellor, Wiley Winchester and the Spanish ambassador Simon Renard, because both men saw here a further danger and a further opportunity. And that danger and opportunity had a name, and that name was Elizabeth. Whatever the rights and wrongs, it is quite clear that Elizabeth, willingly or unwillingly, would always be the focus of resistance to Mary. And anyway, Winchester and Renard both assumed that Elizabeth had been part of the conspiracy, and if she hadn't, well, it was merely a detail. She would surely be guilty at one time or another, just a question of getting any punishment early. As far as Renard was concerned, it was time to total. Renard called home. The Queen is advised to send her to the Tower. Since she is accused by Wyatt, 
named in the letters of the French ambassador, suspected by her own counsellors, and it is certain that the enterprise was taken in her favour. If, now that the occasion offers, they do not punish her and Courtenay, the Queen will never be secure. You can be pretty clear that by punishment what Renard meant was death. Stephen Gardiner was a little more circumspect, because he was a bit hamstrung by Courtney, whom he wanted to survive, and it would be difficult to kill the one without killing the other. The rest of the council were more equivocal. They were more worried than the Spanish ambassador about the future of England, unsurprisingly. Elizabeth was the only clear, straightforward heir about whom nobody would quibble were she on the throne, and until Mary had an heir, the more hawkish might want to see her incarcerated, but having her executed was rather too radical for them. After Mary had an heir, well, fine, off with a head, full Queen of Hearts treatment. William Paget, meanwhile, had now crossed the floor of the house, as it were, to Elizabeth's side. He'd proposed the Elizabeth Courtney Hitch, summarily rejected, of course, since it would have made Elizabeth even more attractive as a queen, but Paget was working for Elizabeth, and he was an influential, political, clever sort of bloke. Gardner's overt clericalism irritated Paget. So in Paget's motivation, it's very likely he wanted Gardner to fail as much as he wanted Elizabeth to succeed. In Mary, Renard and Gardner found willing and receptive ears. Mary was suspicious of her sister, as we know, and had already tried to lure her to London with the "'You'll be safer here, darling!' gambit, only to be rebuffed by the "'Oh, how lovely that would be, but I'm in the middle of a sickie at the moment. Oh, dear!' defence. Now, on the 8th of February, Mary decided that a rest of the despised sister it would be, like it or lump it. Kid gloves, off, and all that sort of thing, and off went a very grand embassy of three privy councillors and a troop of horse to Ashridge to bring their Lady Elizabeth home, sick bag or no. There's a little confusion about who actually went. John Williams was named in one report and William Howard in another. Who on earth cares, I hear you say, get on with it. Well, it is interesting to a degree, a little bit. Firstly, because it was probably William Howard who was basically sympathetic to Elizabeth and therefore allowed her to play silly buggers more than another would have done on the way home. And then John Williams is interesting because he would have a connection with Elizabeth for a while, being her jailer at his house at Reichert for a while. Reichert, which is in between Wickham and Oxford, and a good stopping place if you're travelling to Oxford from London. All that survives of the original house, by the way, is the most magnificent chapel, open occasionally and not for long, and the most extraordinary survival. If you get a chance, go, and that's an order, but do check the opening times before you go. Anyway, John Williams was also the man who would preside, in a secular sense, at the university church during Cranmer's supposed recantation and then subsequent burning. Although he was a Catholic, he seems to have managed to establish a very positive relationship with Elizabeth and with many Protestants to the extent of being sent away from court at one stage, with the whiff of suspicion hanging over him. Anyway, after a bit of messing about, we have finally got to the point where the last episode ended. Sorry to dither. So, let us now fly to Ashridge House in Hertfordshire, which I have to tell you is now a business school, but then was not. And imagine you're the young Elizabeth. You're still only 21, and you hear the troop of horse clattering into your courtyard. You just have sufficient time to look poorly... Oh, before Lord Howard is admitted to see her and tells her that she can stow the malingering stuff, this time she's coming, come hell or high water. 
this time the throwing a sicky defence, which has been such a winner for the princess in the past, was brushed aside because Howard could not this time afford to play by the rules of the game, the big meanie, and he brought doctors with him. Hmm. I would personally have hated to be one of those doctors. Rock, hard place, springs to mind. The formula they arrived at was along the lines of, yes, I can see how dreadfully ill you are, but you're still just healthy enough to go to school. Westminster, I mean. In fact, Howard was not such a meanie. He clearly had no choice. Or at least he had no choice as long as he wanted to maintain his full complement of body parts. But he also seems to have been quite sympathetic to Elizabeth because he allowed the party to take a very long time to travel to London from Hertfordshire, which is, after all, only a hop, skip and a jump, really. One reason, though, is that conveniently, Elizabeth did then actually fall ill. In reality, presumably allowing her to triumphantly use the line on Spike Milligan's gravestone and announce, I told you I was ill. She seems to have swollen up and gone all blotchy, the poor thing, like a pizza. Renard got a hold of the news, and in the sunshine of reports of a swollen belly, he slipped easily and surely into the haymaking business, spreading it around that the Lady Elizabeth had misbehaved by the way of Anky Banky, and that Elizabeth lived loosely like her mother and is now with child. Now, with Elizabeth suffering, it wasn't until the 23rd of February that finally, finally, her cavalcade arrived in London. Say what you like about Henry, and generally people do. He knew how to throw a party, and his daughters were veritable chips off the maggoty old block. We've already seen Mary at the Guildhall commanding obedience with style and presence. And the previous year, Elizabeth had entered into London after her sister in the grandest of styles, and now Elizabeth did it again. Ahead of her and behind her, rode a hundred horsemen in scarlet cloth, trimmed with velvet. And if you listen clearly, you can hear the clattering of their hooves and the jingling of their burnished harnesses and the cheers of the people. Now, whether or not Elizabeth still looked like a pepperoni, we don't know, but it seems that the scandalous rumour of the hanky-panky had made its way back to her ears as well. So there, in the middle of this procession, was her litter, Elizabeth had the curtains flung full back and inside she sat the imperious princess dressed entirely in white to declare her innocence to the world and show the crowds that the rumours were baseless. Even Renard, scandalmonger, was impressed despite himself. Lofty, scornful, magnificent, he breathed into his report's home. She had her litter open to show herself to her people and her pale face kept it proud, haughty expression in order to mark her vexation. Well, it's as well to put on a good show, but once she had finally arrived at Whitehall, life fetched out a bucket of cold water and chucked it over her head. The Queen, her sister, would not see her. Sorry, not at home to traitorous, illegitimate, duplicitous younger sisters. She was taken to an obscure corner of the palace just to bring her down a peg or two. She would have heard, while there, the execution of the Duke of Suffolk going on, and also while she was there, a bit of ostentatious ignoring was the order of the day from her sister, and we all know how wearing that can be. In her little corner of the palace, after a few days, Elizabeth was plagued by a constant stench from above, cooking waste, that sort of thing. Upon investigation, it transpired that above her were the apartments of Margaret Douglas, Countess of Lennox. 
You might remember Lady Douglas, the daughter of Henry VIII's sister and erstwhile Queen of Scotland, Margaret Tudor. And on her last visit, Mary had given her precedence over Elizabeth, suggesting she might put her ahead of Elizabeth in the succession. Margaret Douglas could match Elizabeth toe-to-toe in any haughtiness competition, and her portrait, it has to be said, does her few favours with a strong impression of lemon-sucking. Anyway, once she'd heard who was below her bedroom, Margaret had switched things around so that the room above Elizabeth's was now used for food preparation and disposal and any other smelly sort of job available, just to make sure that Elizabeth was left in no doubt of the Douglas view of the world's hierarchies. On the scale of things, though, Elizabeth had other things to worry about in the seemingly endless delay in communication from Mary, and it clearly played on her mind. She was worrying. Why the big pause? as the barman said to the bear. Mental pressure to hope that Elizabeth would crack would be the obvious answer, but the other was that the home team were looking to build a case before the ton of bricks was released onto the Elizabethan head. And said case was beginning to emerge. Obviously, the first port of call was a pretty strict and close questioning of Thomas Wyatt, presumably with a rack casually left lying around. Oh, that old thing. Must get rid of it sometime, but then you never know when it's going to come in handy. Anyway, you were saying. But Thomas did not give much away. His consistent story was that Elizabeth had not been involved. However, it was not nothing because Wyatt did reveal that he had written to Elizabeth after the rebellion had started, warning her to get far away from London for her own good, and that Elizabeth had replied, he claimed, but carefully, by nothing written, and simply saying she would do as seemed necessary. But other things were coming to light. The French ambassador's correspondence was sneakily opened, one of the best possible traditions of the diplomatic niceties, of course, and in there, was a copy of the letter that Elizabeth had written to Mary, refusing to come to London with the sicky defence. That was suspicious. Had Elizabeth been corresponding with the French, keeping them informed? And maybe, through them, the rebels? And then, Wyatt had also implicated another of the conspirators, James Crofts. So, now Crofts was interrogated again, and in his own words was marvellously tossed and examined. Crofts revealed that on his way back to raise rebellion in the Welsh borders, he'd passed by Ashridge and he'd called in, advising Elizabeth to move to Donington, west of Oxford, where she had a castle, and where, one day, there would be a Monsters of Rock concert with Rainbow and Fist and April Wine and Judas Priest and all the glories of 1980s heavy metal. Good times! Then, further news. Elizabeth had sent her verbal reply to Wyatt by one of her confidential servants, William Sunlow, and a report now came in that Sunlow had been seen in the marketplace at Tunbridge, Kent, with the rebels. By this stage, Mary, Gardiner, Renault were beginning to smell blood. Sunlow was dragged into the tower. He came in, according to one observer, with wonderful stout courage, nothing at all abashed. And Julie, he gave nothing away. But it felt now like only time before the crucial information came across. And at Wyatt's trial on the 15th of March, 1554, he repeated his letter anecdote and such public testimony gave Mary the final nudge she needed. So, there was Elizabeth waiting anxiously at Whitehall, no doubt hoping and praying that Wyatt would give nothing away, that he would not trade some lie for his life or an easy end or any such. So, She would have feared the worst when on the following day, the 16th of March, 1554, 
she learned that the entire royal council was on their way to see her. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When they came, the councillors broke protocol in a way that would seem like a relatively minor irritant now, but which in 1554 would have been hugely significant and certainly a conscious piece of theatre. As they were admitted to the Lady Elizabeth's presence, none of them removed their caps. Now, in a culture where failing to make way for your social superior on the pavement could lead to a bloody bust-up, this was a studied and calculated insult, which communicated a terrifying loss of status to Elizabeth with no words needed. But words there were too, of course. Elizabeth was accused of being part of the conspiracy to destroy her sister, now, Elizabeth was as strong as she was clever and she refused to yield an inch. But the next she knew, after the councillors had left, was that her servants were removed and guards put in their place. A couple of days later, two councillors, the Marquis of Winchester and the Earl of Sussex, came to find the isolated princess and told her grimly it was time to go to the tower. Elizabeth followed the rule of never making anything easy and she played desperately for time begging to be allowed to write to her sister, well aware that many who passed into the tower as prisoners didn't come out again. Winchester knew exactly what she was about. He knew that if they took too long, they'd miss the tide needed to take the boat to the tower, but Elizabeth stood her ground. The letter survives, and it's a stout defence of her position and denial of any wrongdoing at all. She echoed the words of King John Lebel, the defeated French king of Poitiers, reminding Mary that a king's word was more than another man's oath. She begged her sister not to fall for the same persuasions as Somerset had when faced with his brother the Admiral Seymour's plotting that he could not live safely if the Admiral lived. And then, as for that traitor Wyatt, he might peradventure write me a letter, but on my faith, I never received any from him. With more straightforward denials, she signed off as, Your Highness's most faithful subject, that hath been from the beginning and will be to the end which is probably forgivable hyperbole given the circumstances. By the time she'd sealed up the letter and handed over, the tide had turned and in chagrin, Sussex and Winchester returned to the palace to take the letter to their queen. Now when they emerged from that interview, there might well have been a sort of ringing in their ears, not dissimilar to the noise you might get if a flea got trapped in your ears and was buzzing around trying to get out, which is actually quite a horrid thought. Anyway, the point is that Mary was appalled and furious. She raged at the pair of them for allowing Elizabeth to dupe them and, according to the ambassador, appealed to the shades of her father in her fury, declaring that they would never have dared to do such a thing in her father's lifetime and that she only wished he might come to life again for a month. There was no prospect of a reply, needless to say, and at nine o'clock the following morning the chastened pair of courtiers were back at Elizabeth's apartments and this time, there was no escape. Maybe, as she was escorted off the premises, she looked to see if she could catch the eye of the Queen in her apartments, but
but it was Palm Sunday and Catholic ceremonies were in full flow. Mary had other fish to fry. When they arrived at the tower, Elizabeth demonstrated once more what a loss to the Baftas she really was. Tradition has it that she arrived at Traitor's Gate, but I have it on good authority that the tide was too low and so her barge pulled up at the wharf and she would have needed to disembark and walk to the land gate. There was an audience, none of whom had presumably been forced to pay the frankly criminal prices you pay in London for theatre these days. But the princess played to her gallery like a professional, and had she been there, no doubt Dame Judy could only have handed over her Oscar in admiration. Firstly, Elizabeth refused to get off the barge. Why should she go into the tower as a traitor, since after all, as everyone knew, she was as true a woman to the Queen's Majesty as any is now living, and thereon will I take to my death. It was now raining, and the case was put to the princess, forcibly probably, that she had absolutely no choice, nor did they, and all this was achieving was to get her and they wet. So she stepped off the barge, along with the Marquis of Winchester and the Earl of Sussex, still there with them, and ahead of her was John Gage, the lieutenant of the tower. Behind him, she could probably now see the drawbridge lined with soldiers. The crowd was probably a little bit confused. They knew they shouldn't cheer because they'd been told, but the natural instinct was strong. This was a princess. It was supposed to cheer for princesses. Elizabeth then sold them all a bit of a dummy by slumping to sit on a stone in the rain, to John Gage's distress and social confusion. I don't think a stone-sitting princess is in the playbook. Madam... You were best to come out of the rain, for you sit unwholesomely. It is better sitting here than in a worse place, for God knoweth I know not whither you will bring me. Once more she was persuaded, and now there were some cheers, some cries for her support. But now she was approaching the armed men. What? Are all these harnessed men here for me? Possibly a little bit lippy there, and maybe John Gage looked a bit nervous. No, madam. It is indeed so. Oh, hang on. Went a bit dobby there. Let me try again. Yes, it is so. It is needed not for me, being, alas, but a weak woman. This would not be the last time that Elizabeth would play the weak and feeble woman gambit, not by the longest of chalks, indeed, by the longest of all possible chalks. Between the rows of supposedly grim and intimidating guards, several of whom forgot themselves, dropping to their knees, doffing their caps and saying, God save your grace, for which they would receive the cold coat, as it was known at the time, the P45 in modern parlance, shown the door, give them more time to spend with their families, select your euphemism as appropriate. The word dungeon was then used in one source, but you can forget that. Elizabeth was shown to the royal apartments by Sussex and Winchester, no cold and dank corner for a Tudor princess, that would not be seemly in so many ways. Physically comfortable she might have been, mentally the pressure must have been immense. Even if she was as clean as she said she was, who knows who would say what when threatened with the rack. Elizabeth surely cannot have failed to remember that her mother had been here in this very place and had ended up being convicted and executed on evidence every bit as dodgy. As the pressure grew, Elizabeth even contemplated asking her sister for the sword, like her mother, rather than the axe. Did she but know it? The further evidence that Mary, Gardner and Renard had confidently expected did not appear to be as forthcoming as freely as had hoped. 
Connell was desperate to get this thing finished before Philip came over to be married and was finding the whole thing deeply, deeply frustrating. On the 13th of March, he'd written to Philip telling him confidently that Elizabeth would be tried soon and he pressurised the council hard to get things sorted. He muttered angrily against Gardiner, accusing him of managing things really rubbishly. As far as he was concerned, the council are a bunch of backsliders and half of them were in league with heretics anyway. Gardiner shared his frustration, but many of the council were nervous and understandably so. There's a nice anecdote which rather illustrates the point. So, Elizabeth has just been taken to her apartments and the door began to be locked and slammed with some enthusiasm and possibly excessive zeal by the Lord's Treasurer and Chamberlain when the Earl of Sussex, alarmed and in something of a blue funk, intervened, stopping them. What will you do, my lords? What mean you therein? She's a king's daughter and it's the queen's sister and you have no sufficient commission to do so. It's a classic conundrum. Remember, Elizabeth is still heir. Remember, these are the Tudors we're talking about and the bodies of Wyatt's men are no doubt still within smelling distance. The point is that without evidence it was going to be tough and Stephen Gardiner was clever enough to know it. A treason trial of the daughter of the great and terrible Henry VIII. It would have to be watertight and watertight it was not. And no more witnesses were coming forward and so it was to be a duel. The Royal Council would have to get Elizabeth to break down and confess by hook, and if hook did not work, well then it would have to be the crook. On Good Friday, Mary was reviving a peculiarly English tradition of creeping to the cross, a tradition that Henry had been unable to bring himself to ban, but which his son had forbidden. Elizabeth, though, had a demon to face and to slay instead of creeping, in the form of her battle royal with the royal council. Throughout the conversation with the council, Elizabeth constantly fought to slow the ball down in rugby parlance by claiming a failing memory. Why had you been planning to flee to Donington? they demanded. Where? said Elizabeth. I have so many houses, I forget all their names. I agree, such a problem, isn't it, Liz? When pushed, however, suddenly memory tended to slot back into place. Indeed, I do now remember that I have such a place, but I never lay in it all my life. And as concerning my going unto Donington, I do not remember. I can imagine it driving the council absolutely potty-noggin. Time and time again she went for it. And their room for manoeuvre and brutality was severely limited. There could be no sideways glances at the rack here. Elizabeth had to hold her nerve and maybe, just maybe, she could get out of this alive. Lord knows what she thought then when next confronted by James Croft himself, brought into the room to confirm that Donington had indeed been discussed by them. Now, there's a reason why Donington in particular was the focus, because more evidence was being discovered from there. A dispatch home from Renard on the 3rd of April reported that he'd spoken to the Queen and Mary had assured him that from day to day, they are finding new proofs against Elizabeth. That especially, they had several witnesses who deposed as to the preparation of arms and provisions which she had made for the purpose of rebelling with the others and of maintaining herself in strength in a house to which she sent the supplies. Mary and Renard were convinced of Elizabeth's guilt 
This was not just a cynical attempt to frame her. They were utterly convinced that Elizabeth had been part of this all along. And in fact, a halfway house is very possible or even probable that Elizabeth waited on events and did indeed make preparations to fortify Donington. That could have been as much to protect herself from chaos during a rebellion as to seize a throne, but, you know, if Wyatt, Carew and Crofts had done well, it wouldn't harm to have been ready. And she was, after all, the second largest landowner in the country. She had the resources. So Gardner and the council kept pushing her on Donington. Here was the weak spot, the pressure point. Confronted by Crofts, Elizabeth once more recovered her memory. I do remember that Mr Hobby and mine officers and you, Sir James Crofts, had such talk. But what is that to the purpose, my lords, but that I may go to mine houses at all times? At some point, maybe, in the conversation, Elizabeth began to realise that they had nothing, and she began to fight back. My lords, she challenged them, all of them aware of the Sussex paradox that if this didn't work out, the woman they were facing might, well, one day be their queen, with power of life and death in her hands. You do sift me very narrowly. You can imagine the edge of danger in the voice of Elizabeth Tudor. And the council at last had to admit that Elizabeth was too tough, too controlled and too clever to break. They would need to find more evidence or another way. But now... Thomas Wyatt's time had come and he would go to the scaffold. Maybe, now, to preserve the fortunes of his family, Wyatt would finally accuse Elizabeth and Mary would have her prize. Wyatt was executed on Tower Hill on the 11th of April. He'd been strung along to the end and may well still have been hoping for a last-minute reprieve, but of course none was forthcoming. Against the impatient signals of his handlers, come on, come on, it's time to cut your head off now, he stepped forward to make a speech. Would this be it? Would this be the time for Wyatt to pay the ferryman? Whereas it is said and whistled abroad that I should accuse my Lady Elizabeth's grace and my Lord Courtney. It is not so, good people. For I assure you, neither they nor any other now in yonder hold or durance was privy of my rising or commotion before I began. It was made immediately clear to Wyatt that no one gave a tinker's curse about hearing any more of his views. Thank you very much. His job now was to come over here and die. And so he did. Head separated from his body by an axe, body sliced into pieces for distribution and gate nailing, head parboiled so it could stay nice and fresh where it sat on the gibbet at St James's. Members of the crowd came forward before the body could be removed, dipped their hankies in his blood. As always, for some he was an enemy of the state, for others a bit of a show to while away the hours, for others a hero, for others a martyr touched by the breath of God. For Gardiner, the sound of Wyatt's confession was the sound of nails being hammered into the coffin of his dearest hope. Elizabeth was a heretic. To protect the true religion, she must die. He knew his mistress's mind. Although Mary was convinced of Elizabeth's guilt, she would not, could not bring Elizabeth to trial without solid evidence, and her lawyers were telling her that this they categorically did not have. Both Gardiner and Mary knew that juries were beginning to rebel against the killing. In just a week's time, Throckmorton would be tried for his part in the rebellion, and to the sound of cheers, the jury would refuse to convict. 
Next, James Croft himself would be brought to trial and only eight jurors could be brought to convict so that the Crown was forced to find some new ones who would do their duty properly. Although Gardner could not know that it had got that bad, he was an intelligent man and he felt that time had passed. Unless a really brave hero could come forward and rather than just doing their best, could do what was required because the ends justified the means. There is a saying that there are occasions when it is better to ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. And for Gardner, this was one of those times. And so that very day, he had his chancery produce his own writ of execution for Elizabeth, signed on his own authority. With luck, no one would dare to stand in his way. He was, after all, Chancellor of England and the Queen's right-hand man. It would take some balls to say him nay. Without telling Mary, the writ was taken to the tower, Elizabeth's life hung by a thread. It was Thomas Bridges who received the instruction at the tower, who you may remember from Jane Grey's story. As Bridges surveyed this order from the most powerful office holder in the land, survivor of the politics of Henry VIII, possessor of the richest sea in England, he must have thought of the fury with which a delay would be greeted. We have found out already with Jane that Thomas Bridges was a humane and decent man. That day he proved a brave one too. He refused to execute the writ. He defied the most powerful man in the land and would not accept the writ unless it bore the Queen's seal. And so Elizabeth's life was saved, for now at least. It was the last throw of the dice. The terms of Elizabeth's confinement were loosened in early May, the council debated Elizabeth and Courtney's fates, and Sir Henry Bedingfield was appointed to take Elizabeth away on house arrest. Of course, in the Tower, Elizabeth could not know this, and so when Bedingfield turned up with another troop of horse, she panicked, assumed the worst, and asked if Jane Grey's scaffold had been taken down or not yet. But before long, she knew the truth. She was to be taken away to Woodstock in Oxfordshire and placed under house arrest. For the moment then, Elizabeth Tudor, through nerve and strength of mind and heart, had survived. For the moment, Elizabeth Tudor, through nerve, strength of mind and heart, and the love of the English for their legal system, had survived. Her sister's mind, meanwhile, had moved on now. Moved on to her own duty and possibly happiness, and the future of her kingdom. Her mind had moved on to marriage. And we will find out about Mary's marriage in two weeks' time. But before that, some folks at Agora were talking. So stay tuned and have a great fortnight. And that is why tableware was so important for the founding of the country. Oh, that is fascinating. I can't believe you learned that from a podcast. The world really needs more outlets for this sort of infotainment. Everybody stop what you're doing and listen. What? What? This is not a drill. You asked for more outlets for high-quality infotainment, and you're going to get more than you can handle. The Agora Podcast Network is bringing together names like Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud to the same place at the same time at a convention devoted to educational podcast content. No, no way. way! Way. On June 29th, from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., Agora is bringing you the Intelligent Speech Conference at the Norwood Club, located at 241 West 14th Street, New York, New York. 
Will it just be those three? No! In addition to Mike Duncan of the History of Rome and Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English, many of your favorite Agora Podcast Network hosts will be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, Xander and Eric Fogg of Reconsider, Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy Podcast, Claude Myron Guzer of the Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Alduri of the History of Westeros, and Benjamin Jacobs of Wittenberg to Westphalia. Wow, those are all amazingly talented individuals. Really talented individuals. Some of them are amazingly talented even more than others, but surely there are too many for one day. Have you never been to a convention before? There'll be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tech. Well, okay, there won't be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. Hmm, that does sound good. But what if I get hungry? Relax. The $175 tickets will include dinner with your favorite podcasters. And the $125 tickets will include access to the Norwood Club for the day. Wow, I'm sold, but how do I get there? The Norwood Club is conveniently located near a variety of exciting subway stops. If you want to drive your car in Manhattan for some reason, you can do that too, but parking is expensive. I recommend the train. What an amazing idea! And some fine urban planning knowledge. But does this Manhattan have anything to do other than the convention? Are you kidding? Oh, you're not. You're not kidding. Okay. Um, well, Manhattan is one of the most exciting places on the planet, and the Norwood Club is located on the borders of Greenwich Village, one of the key cultural destinations in the city. Only a few long, long blocks from the High Line, and a short subway ride from dozens of museums, restaurants, and shopping. Make it a weekend trip and have an amazing time. Wow, I'm booking my hotel now. Where can I get tickets to Agora's Intelligence Beats Conference? To go to the conference and see Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud live and in person, simply go to intelligencespeechconference.com. Awesome! Oh, awesome! Just for the record, they're both giving a thumbs up. You can't see it because it's an audio medium, but I just thought you should know because it's very impactful. But remember, Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, together, in the same place, at the same time. And to learn more, you can go to intelligentspeechconference.com. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.